Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. All right, Tim, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast. Thank you for having me, Jay. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a mutual friend in James Quandall who introduced uh, us and he got me uh, hooked on your content and following you. And I'm just really excited to discuss kind of everything you got going on. I mean, a book and then just like a great knowledge and skill set on all things training and performance. So there's a lot to lot to dig into. But yeah, man, you I know you're, you've already started pre-orders on your book. And I know that writing a book is like a crazy feat. So my opening question to you is actually going to be on how did you take care of yourself during writing a book? Because as someone who has published and written a lot of research, but not written a book, I know the crazy mental toll that it can take. So dude, what did you what did you do to take care of yourself during that time? Well, I think uh, the funny story about James, and it's kind of a good prelude, uh, finished the book, started sourcing some people to help us get the book out there to the to the world. And uh, James's opening line was, well, nobody's first book does well. And I'm like, I got to write two of these things. You know, that was like the funniest part, part, like all that work that went into it. Uh, So the origin (laughs) story, which kind of goes backtracking to, I was a head strength strength conditioning coach at Army West Point, uh, where we were really bad, um, just to put it bluntly, like we were so bad. 2014, uh, great, great bunch of guys, but just, we're just severely outmatched by all of our opponents. And then 2015, we end up losing two FCS opponents, which for most uh, folks, if they don't follow college football, if you lose to two programs in a year that are actually uh, actual, like a level below you, you're probably going to get fired that year. So, but for whatever reason, we were able to sustain that year. Right. Um, but the thought was, if we slow cook this and long play this, and this goes into the initial interview I had with my boss, Jeff Monk in there and Army. He's like, how would I, how should I evaluate you? It's basically, what are your goals for you? You want for this program to be on our contract year through third or fourth year? And I'm going to reverse engineer the process to day one. So if it's culture, if it's toughness, it's these things that are like really hard to define. We're going to develop a plan to go do that. But the other part was he mentioned we want them fast and physical, which I, to me meant, okay, now we have to go to work in terms of devising a long term periodization scheme to really getting that outcome in that most important year. And it wasn't a matter of like trying to not sabotage or not really put a lot of stock into those first couple of years. It's just, you weighed it where if we are good in the year that actually makes a difference from the contract year slash like, you know, the long-term development of a lot of the freshmen you're coming in and put a lot of your stock into your continued success, you probably have a better chance of survival, uh, which led into this planning of let's create some sort of periodization scheme that we can, really, really unpack a lot of physical development. And the thing I really leaned in on was a lot of our skill position players were asked a lot during practice. So for instance, a wide receiver, a defensive back, we GPS to everyone. So we track everything from an actual catapult measuring system, which does distance and speed and every variable you can imagine, even change direction. And we found some of our actual perimeter players were doing five, six miles at a given practice. And I mean, this is like endurance training up the wazoo, but you're thinking it's football. It's a team sport. These guys got to be really anaerobically or fast twitch oriented. But the problem is, is they're practicing for two, three hours and running six miles in a given practice. So the biggest limiting factor was probably their overall fitness. Now, the other end is, you know, we played this style of offense called triple option, which if you've ever seen this play out, just run the ball. But what that is, is very timing oriented. So the philosophy from a coaching staff is just rep after rep after rep. So in a volume of practice, like you're going to get so many high intensity work, like work in a given day. So if you're looking at it from a pie chart distribution, it's going to be like 
under 10% high intensity work and then like 20 to 30% intermediate. And then the rest is just kind of standing around walking and watching. And for us, it actually came a lot more high intensity work. And you see this massive drop off from a fitness or performance perspective towards the tail end of practice and guys getting injured quite a bit towards uh, through the season from just unrelated stuff. Like when you're seeing hamstring stuff mid season, or are you seeing really like speed go down mid season? That just means we're overworking our guys. So what it had to come down to is we need to devise a better, uh, I guess a bioenergetics plan, develop some sort of cardiovascular fitness program that would actually get our guys prepared for what they're going to do during course of practice and games. And then from another level, what we kind of call biomechanic biomotorability is looking at the biomechanics of what are actually the, the movements and the actual constructs of those movements from a connective tissue, a muscular tissue, from a movement perspective, from a planar thing going front, frontal, transverse, or sagittal into devising a plan to help those guys based off of position. And then from a speed or a force or actually duration kind of capacity. And it really landed on how do we peak these guys, which as we're unfolding and unpacking, and sorry, this is a very long-winded answer here, but we really came down to our, our guys really needed to be a specialized program or a peaking program where our skill guys really needed a special program where they can do a lot of yardage in the course of uh, the off season from tempo running and moderate intensity work. And they needed to be really good in space. And that kind of created this construct of, well, what actually things allude to being good in space. And maybe it's something like being really eccentrically oriented or elastic. Like when you see like this manifest into programming within a team setting is, all right, do we do a lot of plyometrics? Absolutely. Do we do a lot of Olympic lifting? Absolutely. Do we a lot of do a traditional strength movements like squat and deadlift, bench and pull up? Absolutely. But how we structure that makes a huge difference. So instead of just doing generic plyometrics, can we push it to more eccentrically oriented stuff? And what that looks like is bounding and depth jumps and, and things that require a little bit more eccentric strength. And then from a per Olympic lifting perspective, a little bit more timing and rhythm. So not necessarily like from a static position, we might do what we call rhythm snatches or rhythm cleans, where we're trying to develop some momentum and create some sort of an oscillating effect on the bar and then really stress the connective tissues a little bit more as opposed to just coming from a static position like the floor or blocks. And then from a strength perspective, really just trying to get a lot more time under tension eccentrically, utilizing things that require a lot more eccentric overload, like weight release hooks, or even something on the lines of an oscillating bar, like a bamboo or tsunami bar to elicit this outcome that these guys would be really good in space. And what it really came down to was, I don't think we could ever reach enough yardage or mileage in the course of an off season to prepare someone to run 20 miles a week plus playing games. But what we can do is improve their efficiency. And when we look at improving their efficiency from an elasticity standpoint, they're using more passive energy. You know, the connective tissue is actually taking more of a load. So when they change direction, it's not this mechanical, uh, it's not this mechanical energy output that's really breaking them down. They're using more passive structures like tendons, ligaments, and even some of the serious elastic component to help them transition. Conversely, our big guys just need to make them really physical and really tough. And, and it kind of went to a more traditional training condition program. So what that really evolved to is, Okay, our last year there, we went all out and we're really peaked for this, this, this quality with our upperclassmen. Had a great year, moved on, went on to my own personal business here now in a, a Los Angeles called Allegiant. Um, but it kept me thinking about, well, how, why did that happen? And I just started looking through my notes off of that. And then I started looking through the research articles that we started really diving into and the resources that we we're diving into off of that. And I just started looking at those notes and I was just compiling it into some sort of organized fashion. And then over time, I chipped away at it and then all of a sudden the lockdown happened where didn't really know what the future of anyone's business was going to be. So it's like, maybe I need to double down and see if I can actually form this into a book. And so every day I just committed to writing and I just put it into now it's a couple hundred pages and then it's getting ready to meet with, uh, with James and Emily. And then now all of a sudden it's out for print and here we are. Now we got a book out ready for pre-order, which is kind of crazy to see that thought process at a necessity creating some sort of invention. And then, looking looking back and like a debriefing or like retrospectively like almost opening the yearbook back up and reminiscing and then now a situation where potentially i need to find another source of income to potentially survive and support my family and here we are now a couple years later and it's a book so that was the process and to be completely honest like probably like it was really really hard on my systems really hard on myself emotionally but it also kept me focused on what i could control you know i think everyone during 
during the COVID situation was grasping at straws to figuring out what do I have control over? And I'm tending to be like an optimist or a person that likes to control my own destiny. And if I don't know if my own business is going to make it with my commercial gym that I own out here in Los Angeles, I do know that I can get on a computer and write. And I do know that I can get yeah. a product out yeah. there that potentially can sell regardless that it's evergreen, no matter what. And that was the motivation. So I was, I was, it was helped me through a period of time where everyone probably struggled with, but I, I could probably tell you it was a really hard on overall the system, but it wasn't as noticeable or as impactful, relatively speaking to if I was doing that while doing everything else. Yeah, that's it. That's incredible, man. No, I appreciate you giving the backstory there. You know, I think one of the, the beautiful things about individuals like yourself, and especially just for you speaking directly to you, is that you're able to funnel kind of your knowledge, but also your experience into something um, that is going to be available for the, the greater good. And there's something really great about that, because there's a lot of individuals who uh, will go and get schooling and develop an academic knowledge set on an, in a certain area, they'll go and they'll write about it. And there's something that's really nice about that, but also something that's missing if they don't um, have kind of that time in the trenches. And so I appreciate kind of your knowledge set comes from time in the trenches. Uh, and yeah, you know, I know that the writing process, the research process, all of it combined, I mean, it can take a time, it can take a toll on the mind and on the body, uh, but it looks like you've kept yourself uh, in one piece. Uh, so, uh, yeah. so we'll, we'll we'll credit that to maybe amazing recovery, which I'm sure we'll talk about that concept mm -hmm. of recovery here in just a second. But let's let's unpack this. So you were in the trenches as strength and conditioning coach. You've taken all of your experience and your knowledge and that mindset and placed it into this book that's called the Strength Deficit. Let's just unpack the title first. So, what are you referring to when you refer to a strength deficit? Uh, I have kind of my idea. I haven't read your book yet, but I have an idea of maybe where you're going with this idea of strength deficit. But let's unpack what you mean by that. And then just tell us a little bit about kind of what's in this book. Like what are your pillars? Like what are the things that you're really trying to convey to the audience? And then who did you write it for? It's a very small, but I think very intense group. Uh, I think strength conditioning coaches are uh, a unique breed. Uh, we're a very, I guess, I guess you could call a secular tribe where I find they're the, they're the best and the worst customer base because they'll definitely go through what you're doing in a ravenous manner. But once they've gone through everything you could put out, they're done with you kind of thing. So the the constant need to put out new content, <laughs> right. new, it, which is hard to be honest. And to the point we're talking about, like the the practical application, it's always been my focus, man. Like the, the idea of being a coach was always first in the mind. And when you start to write and do different mediums like podcasting or social media, you realize there's a skill to copy. There's a skill to interviewing. There's a skill to putting out really compelling and interesting content. And when you're just so focused on the practical application of being a good coach and being really knowledgeable about it, you're, you're already behind. And there's, there's a dynamic when you, you know, get into that sphere of, I'm not really inclined to, you know, focus so much on writing. Like I'm going to give myself a certain period of time throughout the course of the day or week to do it. I'm not so much focused on my social media or even to the point of, of like even putting out different versions of my podcast. It's, it's more a matter of this is just me being authentic, which I hope resonates, but it leads to a very small, but again, secular and very intense group. And the pressure to stay honest and have high integrity with what you do is always there. So it's definitely geared towards the strength conditioning coach where I am speaking on behalf of my practical experience. And when you read it, it reads like a strength coach writing a book, uh, which I don't think is a bad thing. It just means that it's not going to be on uh, New York Times bestseller anytime soon, right? Like, I can't right. imagine. Is it just you yelling profanities about yeah, lift heavier weight, lift heavier yeah, weight? No, exactly. <laughs> it's a hundred percent that. Yeah. Just imagine that, that like voice <laughs> and my, 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 myself just permeating every single weight room. And like, um, I love it, but, but like, that's the other side. It's, you know, I, I always, I got a really good line from my business partner when we were opening up our gym and we just committed to being group-based strength training, right? And there's so many different pressures and things to, oh, you should focus on doing a, a hit class and you should focus on doing this. And like, we really just centered on this idea of the riches and niches. If we're really good at what we do, people will come. And I think that's the same thing with when I wrote the book. Like, I'm committing to this group, strength conditioning coaches, uh, college, high school, private, doesn't really matter to me. If working with athletes, you're a strength coach in my mind. And uh, it kind of gets a different title in there as well if you're looking at it from a performance enhancement specialist. But, you know, the, the general um, 
classic line is you're, and it creates this like archetype or this imagery of a guy with a whistle around his neck, five foot eight, bald head, screaming at everyone, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm okay with that, that archetype. Uh, cause I think it, it, it's, it obviously resonates with myself and the people that I'm my peer group, but if I can really capture that audience and they feel like, wow, this is a valuable resource, then I think of the concentric, cir- concentric circle off of that will be, be bigger, right? Because the, the people that are hardest to impress, the people that will sit through your BS and say, this isn't really good. This is kind of impractical. This isn't really well-founded in science. I don't see the, I don't see myself applying this. They're the ultimate filtration system. And if we can make it through them, and they believe in it, they resonate with it, and they really value this as like a seminal resource that they can go back to and go, now I got some ideas to work with in my setting, then it makes its way out to the next rung and the next rung after that. And I'll tell everyone, it's like, if you ever read any of Shane Parrish's stuff or Charlie Munger's stuff, like all models are, are really wrong, but some are useful. And when I look at this, it's a model. It's practical in some settings, but not all settings. And the more I can be honest and transparent about that, I think... It's a long play, but it'll resonate more over time as opposed to just telling you it'll work for you. It's fine. It, it, it doesn't matter who you are. It's going to work for you. That's not true. There's a certain level of like it was very specifically written for football. It has some extension, maybe track and field where I've been working through some different coaches and just kind of communicating with them about how am I applied to tactical settings like someone in airborne who's landing mass from massive loads from a, a, from a plane and going down to you know, ten, a couple thousand feet landing on the ground. It's huge eccentric forces, so maybe you want to increase the deficit there. Um, and then people working on the ground, infantry, artillery, and carrying heavy loads, they might want to decrease the deficit, which for context, all that is is just essentially looking at your eccentric strength and how I resist gravity or yielding towards the ground versus your concentric strength or how I overcome gravity or moving away from it. Eccentrically is lengthening, concentrically shortening, and all we're trying to do is figure out the ratio between the two. And we find that naturally people be, without any training influence are going to be organically stronger eccentrically, right? This is how we learn to locomote from our kids getting up on the ground. They're going to be naturally eccentrically stronger. They do not have the muscular strength and the coordination to overcome gravity. So they have to rely on their passive structures to be able to move and locomote to be able to get upright. And you see them when they start to get two feet, what do they do? They get their head forward and start getting a lot of momentum. And then how do they stop is really how well they eccentrically turn themselves around. And that's essentially all we're looking at is if that is in case of like where we want to be from a, or this is where we're at when we start. And then we start to influence them with strength training, which everything we do from a strength training perspective is all gravity based. So the biggest rate limiting step is going to be concentric, right? So if I can't overcome a certain aspect of the lift, I'm not going to be able to execute on the lift. So organically, strength training is always going to be limited by concentric strength. So if I introduce someone to a general strength training program, they're going to start to get concentrically stronger relative to eccentrically stronger. So what that will do is decrease this deficit between eccentric and concentric strength. So what it's now looking at is from one end of the spectrum, we're always going to be stronger eccentrically without any outside influence. And then we introduce them to strength training, which is a traditional strength conditioning program. And we're going to decrease this deficit between eccentric and concentric strength. And what happens? We see our guys going out there running six miles a given practice, have to do all this change of direction and, and really wide open spaces, have so much elastic and eccentric demands. And we see a lot of soft tissue injuries. We see a lot of, lot of issues like, like ACLs and things that are really decelerative in nature coming about. Well, is there something we can do from introducing them to more eccentric stress to increase their capacity to handle that from a bioenergetic and biomechanical standpoint? Maybe. And that was what thought the whole process is. What do I do to uh, maybe manipulate these ratios to be better for them? This is our guys who are playing closer to the line of scrimmage. They actually behooves them to be able to overcome someone else's body mass, come from a static position. That traditional strength training approach of concentrically limited things are going to really extend themselves to be more successful. The problem is when we work in a team setting and we're trying to control a group from a strength conditioning perspective is we get kind of locked into it's better to have a simple plan executed well and do a concentrically oriented program as opposed to a, a multivariate program, multiple things going on simultaneously 
because I'm not going to be good. It's like being a, a master of nothing kind of concept where I'm trying to, <coughs> excuse me, I'm trying to build in a framework and not only just from the, from the science and the efficacy of it, but from a logistics, giving you the practical application and telling you the mistakes I made throughout the book. Like, yeah, we tried doing it like this. Didn't work. However, we found this is a better solution. So it goes into this level of you're going to get a really deep background on the biomechanics, the physiology, even to the point of, of looking at it from things like gear ratio of like what muscle fibers really orient themselves to creating high force and handling high forces. And then we look at even to the part of altering connective tissue, looking at the connective tissue that surrounds the muscle fiber versus on the either distal ends with the more longitudinal aspects. And that's all like really granular and very specific. And for the strength coach out there, or the person who has a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge and insight, they're going to go, Oh, okay. I can, I can go through that. But for the other person, maybe just starting their career or just wants a general understanding of it, we're going to give you a really detailed view of the actual practical aspect of it. And all the book, the book has all of the programs I used at army, but it actually has the write up and the mistakes and the actual implementation of that. So it goes from, okay, well, how do we manipulate these ratios that organically are going to be stronger eccentrically? And then we introduce strength training concentrically. That's going to decrease this deficit into, we need to evaluate if that actually is good or bad. And then we need to evaluate, what do I do if I want to change it? Here's the rationale and the premise behind that. And here's the actual application of it. So this is a, a pretty much a how to guide cliff notes version of how to create a really robust level program that's going to accommodate certain certain positional groups or, or physiological demands into the rationale and the science behind it so you can understand that interpret that yourself hopefully in a really uh reader friendly type of orient uh, orientation where it's not just you're just, you're just reading acronym soup and you're just going through this and like i have no idea what i'm lost now into this now practical application that you can go okay now i can start to apply this and i can start to think about this in my setting and i'm not just kind of left out to dry and told this a cool concept just with no actual application factor whatsoever. So that was the whole premise is let's give a really good how-to guide to alter these ratios between concentric and eccentric based off the, we need to evaluate if that's actually something that's needed in the first place. Tim, what's the best way or the best starting place to identify these deficits? Um, because I think there's going to be individuals um, who may not kind of understand how to assess where their deficit is. Um, maybe it's a mechanism of them thinking that there maybe isn't a deficit because they're like, I'm you know super strong in this area or you know whatever they feel like um, might be bolstered in one area or another. So where's, where's a good starting place for, for most people? Um, or you could split it up for like the high performer athlete and then talk more about kind of like the general individual. Outcome measures, right? I think this is or KPIs, key performance indicators uh, in anything, our businesses, our day-to-day life, like we're looking at HRV a lot, right? Those things are are really important outcome measures for the things that we repeatedly do. And one thing I look at from a key performance indicator or any kind of testing thing is, is one, is what I do have an influence on that? And two, is it going to be overly biased to me just gearing so much for the test, right? So the traditional way, maybe people jump to this conclusion, which I did early was, all right, I'm going to do a specific strength test to evaluate concentric versus eccentric strength. So you might look at it from, I'm going to do a one RM on back squat, and then I'm going to do a 10 second eccentric maximal back squat. And I've done that. And to be honest, there's a huge learning curve to that. And there's a huge bias towards people with more experience with back squat. So that makes that test not really universally accepted, right? So let's say that you have a uh, herniated disc and I can't back squat you. I can't do that test. Or let's say that you're just more inclined to doing things like goblet squat and front squat and other movements for a lower body that you're just not as well versed for that. So you're going to automatically have uh, a bad reading from that test. Now, the thing that I really look at from any sporting thing, it just really comes down to, can I sprint faster? Can I jump higher or further? Can I throw something further or higher? And then can I go longer at the same speed? And when we think about it that that simply, right? Like just this keep it simple, stupid type of methodology is when I go to my coach, did I or did I do, not do my job? I evaluate myself based off of hitting those benchmarks. Are they sprinting faster? Are they changing direction more efficiently, meaning they're moving faster within directional changes? Are they jumping higher and further? And can we throw something further or higher? And these like general descriptive things should be manifested from good training, right? If I'm training really effectively, I have a good premise and a good hypothesis from my actual training plan that should manifest into, 
outcome measures that are improved. And then the other part is if I'm really good at really executing, right, that plan. Like I have a really good idea behind the training plan. My strength deficit periodization scheme is, is sound. I got the research to back it up. But then I don't execute on it. You'll see that not materialize into improvements in the sprinting, jumping, and throwing. So what I do is evaluate this very generic, very universally accepted type of thing for all team sports. And that's my testing. And I start to look at the training plans that most influence that. But within those sprinting, jumping, and throwing, there's actually different branches that I can look at. So the one that we use a lot for strength deficit is just simply a jump profile. And the, the, the easiest way to do that is looking at a counter movement jump or coming from a standing position, descending down towards the ground rapidly, and then reacting to that descent to make a jump. And that's a very essentially oriented thing. There's a concept in physiology called stretch shortening cycle that as I load my connective tissues, it will create this reflex in an equal and opposite direct direction. So if I can create more eccentric load and then I'm equipped to handle that from a connective tissue and muscular tissue standpoint, I'll react to that favorably. If I don't have eccentric strength from a connective tissue or a muscular tissue perspective or from a reflexive system, and this is where something like looking at HRV or even resting heart rate or anything like a grip test from my CNS or central nervous system readiness will manifest out into a longer duration between that descent into that ascent or what we call in physiology amortization, that that jump performance will go down. So first off is look at what is their counter movement jump is kind of our baseline. And that's what we said is our eccentric load, right? And we utilize force plates where we can see something like a reactive strength index, which is a really cool metric that we can further evaluate that, that impact on that amortization. But the simplest way that I, I explain this to my athletes is the less time you spend on the plate and more time in the air, the higher the RSI. To me, you're really efficient, right? If I have a really high RSI, closer to 1.0, so that's how much time it takes me to descend down to leave the plate, that means I have a really, really high RSI. You're probably very eccentrically oriented. Now, on the other end, we compare that to a non-counter movement jump. So I get you down, I stop you for a three-second hold in a quarter squat position, and then from that static position, jump as high as you can. I just taken away that, that stretch shortening cycle. So now all you have to do is overcome that position. So I'm taking away that stretch reflex and I'm really trying to utilize muscular tissue to come out of, come out of that position. So how much can you create force from a static position? That would be evaluating your concentric because it's only overcoming. So now I look at the ratio between the two. So if I have a really, really high counter member jump and a really low non-counter member jump, I'm very eccentrically oriented. It's when we start to see these things become even, that's when we start to look at that as you're very small in terms of your deficit and very concentrically oriented. Now, let's say that you play wide receiver for us at Army and you have a very high non-counter movement jump, relatively speaking, to counter movement jump. We got to go to work and improving your eccentric ability versus let's say that I play interior lineman and have a really, really high counter movement jump and a very low non-counter movement jump. I need to improve my concentric strength. And then what we do is just almost looking at this from any research design is we create a hypothesis, we create a research design or a test, and then we start to put our athletes through the test. And then we see, did we, did we get to that outcome? Did we, is our hypothesis correct? Was our testing method, method correct? And then do we actually make improvements? So that really spawned, okay, do we utilize different methods, right? I could use a different time under tension eccentrically or concentrically. So I can lower myself slower or I can come up faster. I could look at it from different tools or implements. So that one might read to, if you're ever familiar with things like accommodating resistance or bands or chains, that's a lot of concentric influence. So that might decrease the deficit. So I want to do that with my inside the box guys or people I want to get concentrically strong. Maybe I want to utilize something like weight release hooks, which is overloading that eccentric as I'm going down and increasing their eccentric strength there. It might come down to cross-correlating that to something like lean muscle mass or body composition. So if I need to increase someone's lean body mass, regardless if I need to improve their eccentric strength, I might need to go a little bit longer duration per set. I might need to utilize heavier loads. If I have a good body mass and good lean body mass, I might want to get more ballistic with it and get more rate of force development type of stuff like plyometrics and sprinting. Where it really gets, I think, in the trenches and practical for our strength conditioning coach out there is breaking up the 
what we call outside work and inside work. So outside work would be all the running and sprinting and plyometric stuff you can do. Inside work is pretty much all the weight room stuff, you know, all the stuff that we're doing with the bar, dumbbell, kettlebell, et cetera, to really make and elicit these changes. And as a, where I get really into the aspect of practical, I'm giving permission to strength and conditioning coaches to not have to spend as much time in the weight room for people need to increase their rate of force development and eccentric strength because we're better served doing things outside. And what we found from this pre-test, post-test is when we really divide and conquer and get a program that's specific to their needs for eccentric versus, hey, I can actually push more stuff inside from our inside the box guys or decreasing the deficit. That now we have a really reliable answer to, hey, we got to split here. You got to go outside. They got to go inside. And we got to get a program that's more accepted for that, that group. And that outside the box, guys, we, we weren't limited by, all right, we can only do these plyos because our 300-pound guy can't do that. So we, we open the open the actual the, the Rolodex up of things that we should potentially be doing from high-level bounding and higher-level depth jumps and more eccentrically oriented stuff. We actually got to the point where we could do different change of direction drills from like a short-sighted game approach. So if you've ever any read any research and team setting on looking at increasing VO2 max, that is profoundly more effective to do this concept of short-sighted game. Just simply playing tag for 20 minutes is more effective for improving VO2 max than actually running tempo runs. Now, the caveat here is if I got a 300-pound guy playing tag against other 300-pound guys, that's a lot of stress, and the risk goes up. Risk is infinitely down for a guy who's 175 pounds versus the guy who's 300 pounds. So I can get to that point with those guys, and it gave us permission to do that. And it, it was the funniest image you can imagine. So our summer training, we just divide and conquer. We have one half of the group inside the box, just going through just strong man stuff and just gritty, hard nosed stuff. And they're just, they're just getting work versus our outside the box guys are literally just playing short sided games. And our coaches coming out there and just what is going on right now? Why are these guys getting punished? And those guys having the best time. It looked like Top Gun playing volleyball. It was hysterical versus these guys are just going through hell and back. And the the inverse of that was at the beginning of the summer, we were doing a ton of tempo work, just building up our high-intensity sprint yardage and all this other stuff. So our skill guys were just getting worked in June versus our big guys. They're inside doing buys and tries and just getting – a lean body mass type of program. They were trying to put on as much muscle mass as humanly possible in that first month. And then bioenergetically, we have to shift gears to doing things that are really specific to preseason. So if you saw the beginning of the summer, it just looked like it looked like gold gym circa 1970s in the, in the weight room for our big guys. And then our skill guys, it was like literally like the hardest track workout you can imagine outside. So it's like, it was fun to see that flip. But again, it comes down to, we took that risk because we realized it was a calculated risk where I can totally understand and empathize. And I've been in that situation is like, we're better served to, you know, shoot one bullet and do everything as a team, as opposed to trying to shoot multiple bullets and just trying to get multiple targets simultaneously. Like the, the idea of doing something simple and linear is a lot more effective than doing something very multivariate or complicated. And we really leaned in on like the evidence is overwhelming. Like the deficit that we've created good or bad, is limiting one group versus the other if we focus so much on this one thing. And you always program to the lowest common denominator, no matter how much you want, don't want to. But I can't do the outside stuff to the degree I want because my 300-pound guy can't do it. And I can't do the inside stuff as much as I want because it's not really that effective for a 175-pound guy who needs to be good in space. So the alternative is you kind of pick in the middle of the pack for everything. And we just kind of just coast. We get stronger. We get more efficient. We get more fit but not really specifically to anything that we wanted to test for. Right. And we weren't seeing any substantial changes. Like if we found that everyone's right in the middle of the pack between this, like eccentric and concentric ratio, I felt like that was a farce. I felt like that was a mistake. I felt like we missed a mark from a program design perspective or an execution standpoint. And we didn't have the luxury of doing that. Like I said, we stunk, we weren't good. So if we didn't make any substantial changes and take this like big risk, big reward type of mantra, we weren't going to be able to get to the outcome and who knows what the long-term ramifications for that. But you know, that year we turned, we went to a bowl game, we beat Navy for the first time in 15 years and it's been rolling since like in the people that have worked there were my assistants and athletes. So the people that took over from me since I left there have continued a large part of that framework with our athletes and they're still incredibly successful. And if you saw what we were in 2014, 
to what they are now in terms of a program that's continually being successful. You know, I, maybe it's anecdotal. Maybe it's maybe it's just something that I want to say is true. But you know, the evidence was there, and I could show you massive changes from a deficit standpoint from eccentric concentric based off position groups from one to the next. We could even look at it from a sprint profile. You know, and I, I go I can go a little bit into a detail on this, but you know, one of the things that we see from someone running a forty yard dash is most of the changes from a traditional strength training perspective comes from the first 20 yards or that acceleration, that building up speed, break, overcoming inertia and building up your speed. And what we see with that is longer ground contact times on the ground, right? So we have to be stronger to overcome our body's body mass and maintain a certain angle to really improve that first 20 yards. After that, you really don't see much actual changes. So I can go back to our time at University of Southern California where we decided just to drop the back 20 because all improvements were coming from the first 20. What it really did was just prove that what we did was really important, really good at decreasing the deficit or getting people concentrically strong. And then the idea on the back half was like, yeah, whatever, it's not making any changes, but we weren't doing a whole lot of eccentric programming. We weren't doing a lot of very eccentrically oriented stuff to get those guys prepared to be good in space. And we didn't make any changes there. Versus that army, when we got to that actual Bauer timing system, which is a electronic timing system, we wanted to see substantial improvements for inside the box in that first 20. And we want to see substantial improvements for our outside the box in that back 20. Because what that meant is less contact time on the ground, more eccentric, what we call more front side mechanics. Can they get that leg up in front? And are they more efficient in terms of that stride? Versus the guys coming from a static position, building up their speed, building momentum and acceleration that they can actually overcome gravity in their body mass and improve there. And again, we got concentric or counter movement jump versus non counter movement jump, front 20 versus back 20. Are we making improvements in the right spots for our eccentric oriented athletes or skill athletes, back 20 and counter movement jump? And then for our inside the box or concentrically oriented athletes, are we making improvements, non-counter movement jump and front in the first 20? And if we're doing that, the idea is we're more prepared for what they need to do on the field. And our injuries should go down because they are biomechanically ready for what they need to do on the field because most injuries occur because we're just simply not prepared for the stresses they're going to give them, both from a, a fitness perspective or a actual biomechanical perspective. And then performance goes down because we're not we're not, we didn't do anything specific to the needs I have. And then the other side would go back to the beginning. Again, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I tend to go on long rants, but this idea of, of this like general thing, we we're sprinting, we're jumping higher. We're sprinting faster. And I didn't really talk a whole lot about it, but we're throwing stuff further. And above all else, the number one test, and this is always a, a fun thing to go through with everyone. But the only thing that I ever had correlated over my 20-year career to high-level performance is a backwards overhead med ball throw for distance with a five-kilo med ball. The people that can throw over 60 feet were always really good players. The people that can throw over 70 feet were always first-round NFL draft picks. Like, 100%. Let's see. I've seen people run sub four or five and stink at football. I've seen people jump 40 inches or broad jump 11 feet, stink at football. But I've never seen someone throw a med ball, for a five-kilo med ball for 70 feet that was bad. And what it is, it's this timing, right? So can I projectile a med ball? And what that means is they have good levers, so I'm long. So a five foot eight guy isn't going to be really effective because I don't have the right mechanical leverage to do it, right? I'm short and my lever short. My catapult is really, really long. It was really short lever. So I'm already behind the eight ball versus the guy who's six foot three that we know could put muscle mass on and get him stronger and more resilient. He's already built to be able to projectile that ball. The second part is timing. Right? Are they good athletes? Throwing a throwing an implement is athletic, right? And you know, you see people who can throw a football or baseball or swing a golf club or do these things. They're just naturally more athletic. They can time and sequence their body in a certain way to just strike or projectile something more effectively. And the final one is: Are you powerful? Right? Can do you have that perfect balance of force and velocity that that can exert high amounts of force and a great speed? Then okay, well, you're probably going to be able to throw that med ball. And isn't that all the things we want in any team sport? So the athletes that can throw a med ball really far, and this gave me a lot of, okay, why are we Olympic lifting, right? So that's a, a common question you might get in, in a performance training program, like snatch and clean and jerk. Well, I see it actually materialize into that very, very generic, but also to very high correlated to success performance. 
So the people that snatch better and people that clean and jerk better were always better at med ball throw, you know, and, you know, it could be cause and effect or a cause causation correlation. But if I take that away, I don't see as much transition. Right. And the thing about Olympic lifting, it's, it's, it's very skillful. It's very athletic. It's very timing oriented. And you can't, you can't be weak, but you also can't be slow. And that dynamic plays itself out. And we could look at a really good ratio between those two as well. So that would be all the, the, I guess the way I look at it is that person doesn't know how to evaluate this. Start at the end from a very general stuff that me and you could do all three of those assessments right now without any influence. I don't know your strength training program. I don't know what you do for fitness, but I can see where you're at relatively speaking to that. And then from there, okay, I can give you some sort of suggestion. Like, think you need to focus more on eccentric strength or more on concentric strength based off your goal. Sure. No, that makes sense. One thing that you mentioned a while back was the role, and I know my audience will be really interested in this, is the role of utilizing some level of data biometrics. Um, so you said you utilize heart rate variability or HRV um, and heart rate. I believe you said resting heart rate, but you can correct me if I'm wrong yeah. there. Uh, how do you utilize those metrics? So kind of take me through the detail of uh, how that's implemented, um, kind of how you just use it in general. I look at again from how do I accumulate as much of what I want in a training period, right? So we have a training session, which is your individual workout in a given day, a microcycle, which is a block of training sessions in a, in a given period. It could be most times seven days. And then a mesocycle, which is a block of those microcycles. And most times it's four, four microcycles. So how do I accrue as much of what I need to make gross changes in those output measures? That's where I start is if I can get more of those big impactful days towards a greater goal, the better it is. So it kind of falls into this concept of high, low or vertical integration, where we look at vertical integration as feeding into the supply chain, feeding into how do I get more of whatever my big revenue stream is, which is going to be anaerobic output. So that increase in the deficit or decrease in the deficit. And I'm really, I'm really influenced by how well I can recover from that. And that's based off of how much fatigue I produce from those workouts. So if I'm quote unquote unfit, then that fatigue will really, really be high. And my recovery rate will be a lot longer, which is going to limit how much density of these high intensity training sessions I get in a week, a month, a year. So that would be how I look at first and foremost, when do I need to introduce certain testing metrics? So the easiest one, the the balling on a budget one would be resting heart rate. If we have someone who's training three, four days a week and their resting heart rate's above 60, probably means they're very aerobically unfit or they're overly, overly sympathetic. And what we can go from that is look at it. Okay. If they're above 60 and they're training three, four days a week and they're under 25 with our elite level athletes, that's a problem that I can't get as much into that vertical integration as I want from an anaerobic perspective because I'm so limited from a recovery perspective. That when I do a high intensity sprint, that I produce so much fatigue that it takes me three, four, five minutes to recover and have to limit the volume I do on that given day. And that limits the amount of volume I can do in a given week, which obviously fractals out into the month, the year, and their whole entire experience. So if I find that their resting heart rate's really high, I gotta start there. I can improve their general fitness. Now, the other one from a really big point interest session during the actual training session would be heart rate recovery. And if they don't recover in between these bouts of anaerobic exercise, then I'm going to limit how much I can do. Or if I decide to, eh, I don't really care about that. I'm going to tell them to do it anyway without full recovery. There might be at higher risk for getting hurt, or they could be doing something that's completely counterproductive. They're learning to run slow or jump, jump lower. Like that's what they're doing when they're not completely recovered. And again, that comes down to what is their central nervous system readiness. So if they're high CNS fatigue, then they're going to have a longer heart rate recovery. So that's 60 and resting heart rate. And we tell them if we can't improve, we can't decrease our heart rate by 30 to 50 beats per minute in between these anaerobic outputs that they're probably CNS overworked, especially if they're training consistently and they're young and they're resilient, right? They're just overly stressed. They're overly sympathetic. We've done a poor job of prioritizing effort and hard work over really good workout economy and getting good results. And we utilize other metrics like gym aware or velocity-based training. So if we're not hitting the speed that we want at a certain intensity, again, we're not recovered. Or if we see a massive drop off from rep one to rep two, rep two to rep three, rep four, again, we're not fully recovered. Or even looking at it from a speed perspective during certain running drills. Like if I'm, if I can run a four five forty, and I come back and two minutes later, try to ask a 
run again it's a five that's a huge drop off performance is no longer there and go back to resting heart rate and go back to heart rate recovery now where it really gets interesting and this is where i think hrv really has a big place and we talked about this offline was when we look at hrv which is like that system readiness so to speak you know i can go into the other level of looking at resting heart rate or heart rate recovery i can look at it from the perspective of my moving them up into the right over time from improving that hrv that tells me I'm doing the right prescription or not. So as I'm making my way through a training cycle, I'm giving them adequate rest in between. I'm getting them another high intensity CNS and focus day. And then I'm working my way back to it. And I'm not making that progression from improving HRV, decreasing resting heart rate, shortening up that heart rate recovery. Then I have to start to evaluate and probably doing too much frequency of too high intensity stuff. Or I'm not allocating enough rest in between some of these high bouts of CNS work. So all it is just calling me on my, my natural instinct to do more, right? So my job is to improve those biomotor abilities of jumping, fa- jumping higher, running faster, and then throwing something further. I'm inclined or biased to go, I got to double down. I got to push. I don't care if Jay's tired. I'm going to tell him to go again. But I see the next day my heart HRV's tanked and my resting heart rate spiked. Even looking at something as simple as blood pressure, like what is your diastolic blood pressure? That's your vascular elasticity. And if you're inelastic, that probably means that you're pumping a lot of blood out to the peripheral. You can't get as much blood saturated into that cellular level. Oxygen is not getting delivered. And then you become overly pressurized, inelastic from a cardiovascular perspective. And then I have to work that much harder. So you see resting heart rate go up. And then we look at that variability go down. I'm even looking at it from the level of like, you know, what is VO2 max? It's looking at it from a cardiac output perspective. And that really comes down to stroke volume. How much oxygen-rich blood can I deliver to the peripheral really allows me to get more volume anaerobically. So the idea is, all right, I look at someone that's quote-unquote young, healthy, and they're really, anaer- they're really anaerobically trained and they're very aerobically detrained or unfit. And that manifests into seeing low HRV, high resting heart rate, high diastolic or overall blood pressure, and then poor heart rate recovery. Where I really need to do from there, and this is a really interesting really interesting part when I look at why I try to tell strength conditioning coaches it's okay to do oxidative work, is that most changes from a VO2 max, which is going to improve all of those metrics, are coming from a cardiac output, and most of that comes from improving stroke volume. Can I get more oxygen-rich blood per beat? as opposed to being limited by something like left ventricular wall hypertrophy or just overall cardiac hypertrophy and restricted cardiovascular tissues like arteries and veins, and then having poor capillary density and poor mitochondrial function or amount. And then I'm going to be limited by how much I'm going to get from those high intensity inputs. So what it does, it tells me, all right, I'm probably going to be better served working more oxidative stuff early. And that could come from longer interval stuff. It could come from just long, slow distance or hitting zone two for extended periods of time. And where I I work a lot with strength conditioning coaches and tactical athletes for that matter is giving them permission to do stuff that they feel like they're not going to do stuff. That's not going to, that doesn't feel like they're going to throw up from like this, this idea that if it's not all gas, no breaks, that it's ineffective or not good use of the time. Like that's silly. And we have now research to say that that's actually a bad idea. And yeah, it's great to get want to get stronger and more powerful. And I think it's in human nature to be inclined just to do more of that. I keep thinking about it. You ever see the movie Kingpin back in the day with Woody Harrelson? And then um, it finds out that he was playing 10 and a half frame, or he's playing 15 frames as opposed to 10. And they asked him why. He's like, well, the Amish do one and a half more than everyone else. I feel like that's what we do in strength conditioning a lot is like we double down and we do one and a half more than we should of everything else and not enough of the other stuff that balances out. And this simple concept that's been around for thousands of years of duality and whether you look at it from an Eastern philosophy of yin and yang or, you know, what goes up, what must come down, like eventually we're going to pay for the things that we overdo. And if we're playing 10 and a half frames over and over and over and over, and we're not taking any care of the other side, and we're seeing all these metrics from HRV, resting heart rate, blood pressure, heart rate recovery, looking at something like cardiac output and VO2 max, then we're going to run into this premature stoppage point, whether it's they're physiologically breaking down, they're regressing, or they get hurt. And that is, that is not the goal. So thinking about that from the perspective of like, it's the ultimate, ultimate litmus of what I can do. And then it's the ultimate indicator if I'm doing the right amount at the right times as I go forward, which I can totally see 
someone struggling with like that. But the other side of it is like, if that's good, you're doing a good job. If it's not, you got to go back to the drawing board and look at what you're doing too much of probably. And that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I think that there's been this notion for far too long and it's kind of just been passed down that in an effort to re- increase cardiorespiratory fitness, there must be just kind of like this constant training in zone five. There's got to be all this high level, high intensity type of work. Uh, but what we're seeing is that it leads to so much overtraining, so much overreaching, and it just conks out your nervous system. I mean, your autonomic nervous system is so tacky that it just can't recover. And it's in this state of kind of a chronic HRV suppression, increased resting heart rate. I mean, you have immense amounts of uh, the secretion of glucocorticoids, dysregulation of neurotransmitters and neuromodulators like norepinephrine, epinephrine, cortisol, uh, and it just wreaks havoc on the body. And I think that a lot of people are coming to terms now that some, uh, obviously we do need to uh, have some level of high intensity zone five work, but we also need to have kind of this, um, high, we need to have a spread out level of zone two type of training in order to increase cardiorespiratory fitness. And so it's funny because I've worked with so many individuals, um, whether it be athletic, professional athletes, athletic teams, um, you know, high level performers who have kind of transitioned away from just this immense amount overload of zone five high intensity type training and started incorporating less of that and more of zone two or more of the boring stuff as, as a lot of athletes call it that I, that I speak with. And they see significant increases in VO2 max. They see better cognitive performance. They just see better overall training uh, level and training performance. So I think it's a good drum to continue to beat on uh, because I think kind of this old notion of just like everything needs to be, as you mentioned, kind of like gas pedal on uh, when you are working or, or otherwise it's useless. I mean, it's just kind of old outdated science and outdated knowledge. So I appreciate you covering that information and, and, and speaking to that. You know, one thing that we have talked about a lot, Tim, is like this idea of what can we do to kind of uh, diminish or at least sh- shrink the gap that is the strength deficit that people have, especially high performers between uh, eccentric and concentric training um, and load. I want to talk about how this information, if it does, and you can tell us all, um, tell all the audience, how does this translate? Is this really only something that high performers strengthen, uh, high, yeah, say high performers, uh, high level athletes should be focusing on, or can this be translated to the everyday individual? Um, is, is this something that need be discussed kind of within just kind of normal general population circles? Yeah. So, uh, for context, I own a commercial gym, or I own three commercial gyms that we have 500 members coming through our, our business every week. Uh, and we tell them coming three times a week and we, it might sound ridiculous, but we do an undulating periodization plan where we focus on stressing them through volume for a month and then stressing them through intensity for a month. And the idea is it's kind of Groundhog's Day in general fitness where people just keep coming. You know, they're just, there's no stoppage. There's no off season. There's no in season. It's just training year round. So the idea is that Kev to develop cover all bases. But where I call myself out is we do, we have force plates in all our facilities and we do grip testing on everyone. We do a Nordic hamstring assessment. And we test this thing on a weekly, monthly basis to see where, as well as body comp and other variables. But I, I track that. And then I talked about it briefly, but that number RSI um, or that metric RSI, which is time on the plate versus time in the air. I can see that materialize over a period of time if I get too wrapped up in one aspect versus another. You know, So if I had to say of my 500 members, what are their goals? It's to look better and feel better, right? It's not, I want to look better, but I don't want to feel like crap to do it, right? And which is, you know, kind of the mantra of some other concepts out there, like beat the crap out of you. And if you look better, who cares why? You know, but that's not sustainable. So I look at it, those two levels, can I make them look better and make them feel better simultaneously? And if I get too wrapped up in one method or so much concentric emphasis, because I'm just trying to increase lean muscle mass and decrease fat mass and the easiest, lowest hanging fruit from a body compositional perspective. It's just doing stuff that they understand and they can be successful with immediately, which organically gravitates to concentric. We'll see that RSI number go down. And I'm thinking right away, okay, now I'm shrinking the deficit. Is that good? Is that a good thing over time? Or is there going to be some consequences of that? And then we start to look at why people drop off. I got hurt surfing or skateboarding. Well, what happened? I fell off my surfboard and I took this massive hit and I couldn't absorb it. Okay, we'll probably deficient eccentrically. If I look at another reason, potentially someone just 
strains their back picking up their son, you know, like doing that. It happens quite a bit in my setting, not eccentrically loaded enough. So I got to now double back and go, okay, I've done too much of this one thing for too long. Just like we talked about doing too much anaerobic work. If I just get too myopically focused on this one thing, it doesn't need to be this incredible paradigm shift in doing bounding and weight release hooks and aggressive eccentric methods that I could do with my clientele here. It's just about trying to influence eccentric strength a little bit more. Maybe doing some low-level plyometrics, or what we call extensive plyometrics, like a rudiment if you've ever seen any track and field. So low amplitude jumps and hops. Um, maybe it's light rhythmic med ball tosses. Maybe it's doing more eccentric stuff within our traditional strength movements of squat, hinge, push, and, uh, push and press and putting like a 5-0 exotempo or five-second lowering on that. And then seeing, does that influence positively something like RSI? And if I'm making improvements in RSI while increasing, and we just look at the ultimate objective is getting people coming in three times a week, 50 weeks a year. If I can get that, if I can get someone 150 sessions a year, I'm going to accomplish pretty much every goal. And the way I'll get there is looking at these metrics that kind of hold me accountable and keep me honest is RSI in a good spot or making improvements quarter over quarter, or we're constantly concentrically focused and we're tanking in that RSI jumps are going down could easily correlate that to something like HRV or resting heart rate or all these other metrics. We rely a little bit more on subjective wellness scores and our and rate of perceived exertion scores. Just it's easier. It's cheaper. It's right there. And it's more readily. So the first thing you do when you walk in is you fill out your wellness score. So how much hours of sleep, stress, mood, soreness, fatigue, and sleep quality on a one to five scale, one being bad, five being good. Tell everyone if you're above 20, you're probably not training hard enough. If you're below 10, you probably should think about either lightening the weight or getting a rest day in there. And then we match that to their force plate. So if I see someone really low or very low RSI, the first thing I ask them is, how are you feeling? Everything okay? And then I'm telling them, hey, it's okay to take a rest day. So I, I, those kind of metrics teetering in and out. But to answer your question really directly, no, not really applicable in a general population setting, but it's just like HRV. It's something to hold you accountable and give you some sort of indication if you're moving towards your true north, really, ultimately. Well, I know we're uh, getting a little bit short on time, but there's one question that I wanted to ask you, um, and it'll be just kind of a quick, easy pointed question, but something that I get asked about a lot. Um, and so I'm just curious what your take is on it, um, because any time I meet somebody whose background and expertise is in strength and conditioning, um, this is what I love to ask. And it's all about, we didn't get in to a ton related to recovery. Uh, but I know that this is obviously something that is key to performance. I'm, I'm curious for you, Tim, like if you had kind of one practical suggestion or tool or one favorite go-to for general recovery for sports performance, like what's your go-to sleep, drink water, eat like pretty much. And I think that's something I, we look at it habits. Like what are we going to do every day of the year to do that? You can go on a bunch of different other modalities, but I like it all those modalities individually, like a training input. Like if I'm going to do sauna, if I'm going to do cold, okay, that's a training, that's an input to me. And that's, that's something that we need to have a, a marker of intensity, a marker of progression, uh, some sort of impact on the general system. And if I can evaluate that relatively to other things then great, but overall, if we're sleeping, for drinking water, if we're eating vegetables or eating, veg eating, eating in general vegetables and just good amount of food and then having a really good quality of food. And then we put in sunlight exposure as well. Like these like basic things that we should be doing every single day. And then depending on where you're at, like motivations is a, is a ebb and flow thing, right? And like people come out hot in January and like, all right, right. I'm ready to get my infrared sauna. I'm ready to get my cold water immersion. I'm ready to do my meditation. Okay, good. What's that going to look like in a week from now? Like, what's that going to look like that from a month from now? Like, it's just stuff that we have to add to our day. Both of you and I, we have our businesses, we have our kids. And like, that's the same thing for everyone else we work with. And everyone else probably listening to this podcast is like, if you add the stuff, it's subtracting you from something else. Can you subtract that consistently or not? But you can always sleep, drink water, eat, eat more food or eat good food and then get plenty of sunlight. And like, after that, you titrate up certain things or that comes at expense of something else. So I would just say do that is my go-to recovery. And more times than not, it's just about, that's the biggest limiting factor for most people is like, they're not doing that. And they're supplementing their lack of ability to do that with stuff that's, you know, obviously like maybe a little faster track and, you know, a little bit higher threshold or just more interesting. Like, damn, I really want infrared sound in my house, but I know I probably don't have time to do it in a whole lot of level anyway, but I'm going to get it one day. That's my like, my vision board, right? If you remember the secret, like I got my vision board with my garage and my infrared sauna and my cold water immersion. And 
I'm going to have that one day. That's, that's what I'm working towards. But I know when that time comes, that way I'm going to get the most out of that is if I'm building off those other basic habits of just sleeping, drinking water, eating, and then getting plenty of natural sunlight. And then I can add in that, you know, but that'll come. Um, so I would say that right there, like, let me evaluate that first and foremost. And if you're, you're smoking that great, let's talk about some of these modalities and these recovery things. And I got to meditate. I got to journal. I got to, I got to breathe. I could do all these things. Awesome. I'm happy. Yes. Yes. Let's do that. But if we're not doing these basic things. Then I'm going to start there. I'm going to stay there. I know it's boring and redundant, but they get, um, I usually find that's the biggest limiting factor to what we want in the first place. Yeah, Tim, it's the consistent response that I hear from every high level performer and coach is basics before any of the other, these other type of, you know, so-called hacks. Um, you know, it's not that to say, you know, utilizing cold therapy, like a cold plunge or cryotherapy or heat exposure, like a sauna or, you know, something similar to that. It's not to say that those are ineffective strategies, but they uh, it's 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 not that effective if you're you know getting four hours of sleep a night and that four hours is fragmented like it's 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 these basic things that we can do that have been published in hundreds of thousands of studies sleep being like the primary one that I get from most high level you know, coaches and, and and athletes it's doing those basic things that really set the foundation and then we can build on top of that and it's again one of, one of the things that I hear just consistently and you know you mentioning sleep is kind of like the number one, I know you mentioned water and nutrition, which are obviously other things that we have to do. Um, I think sleep, it's, it's one that goes acknowledged by a lot of people, but then a lot of people don't prioritize it even still. And so I think that again, it's just the low hanging fruit that's out there that you have to prioritize. And it's funny because I've worked with a lot of young athletes um, who love to stay up and they love to party and play video games. Uh, but they also have, you know, strength and conditioning that starts at, you know, 6.30 AM, 7 AM. And, uh, you know, they went to bed at, you know, 1, 2 AM. I'm like, uh, do you think you're going to optimize your level of performance by having these consistent patterns and sometimes they can kind of get away with it. But then as you age, like that window shrinks to like basically minimal or none. Um, so I think it's, again, it's, it's all about kind of these basics before hacks. So I appreciate you, you yeah. stating that on the note of sleep. And this is yeah. the, uh, the a point of like testing and tracking, but we track sleep quantity before every training session. And, you know, we probably have about 30% of our clientele wear wearables, Woopora, uh, maybe one day Hana. And, and we're looking at it from the context of there's a threshold that people need to cross when they go into that. And you, sleep anxiety is a real thing. And when I, I see a lot of people omit or skip the sleep quantity number, and that tells me everything I need to know. It's when they don't want to report it, it's when they're not sleeping enough. When they're doing well, everyone wants to tell you how good they're doing. Like, I got eight hours, I feel great. When, they, when it's three or four, whether it's like, I got two kids and they're up all night, probably not going to, I don't want to report that. Like my body composition's going bad because I ate like crap last week. Like I'm not going to go, I'm not going to be like gung ho. Let's see where I'm at. Like I get it. It's human nature, but you're telling me the omission of, of that metric tells me everything I need to know. And that's where I need to focus. And it's like the natural instincts, like, yeah, man, I really want to get a, you know, like a, a wearable to really, you know, track this stuff. Like, you know, the problem is you're not motivated to sleep. You're thinking that's going to motivate you to sleep. In fact, it's just going to be more illuminating as to what you're not doing. So let's just go over strategies before that. And just like cold water, like, you know, I, I, I think the, the threshold of amount of time in a given week is a really important metric, but I have a lot of people, with a lot of disposable income and they could buy a cold water immersion, a couple thousand dollar one, put it in their house and have a room allocated to it. But the first thing I asked them is like, have you ever tried taking a cold shower? Like we live right by the Pacific Ocean. Have you ever just gone into the ocean just in, you know, first thing in the morning, go over there and just try to walk in? Like all the stuff's at our disposal. Like, I don't, know, I don't really want to do that. Like, well, then why are you going to spend 10 grand on a cold water, immer like salt water immersion tub? Like you're not going to do it with it's free and cheap and it's easy. Like that's a way bigger jump. So like, and I want everyone to track this stuff and be, and get all these modalities. I think they really genuinely help. You know, if someone has a Peloton, Peloton bike, I'm like, you're doing the recovery or zone two workouts on there, like every other day or every day, if you can, I want you doing that, like get the money's worth, but you don't need to do a whole lot of high intensity interval or glycolytic work. Like you're balancing the stuff. We got all that covered in here, but like when you have this disposable income or that just inclination that that's going to push me over the hump and get me to where I want to be, you know, like I start off with very simple, like litmus tests of like take a cold shower or, Hey, go for a long walk or, Hey, 
go to bed at nine. And like, if you're tossing and turning for two hours, that's okay. Let's try to get that down to an hour and a half tomorrow. Like shut off the lights, remove blue light, get some reading in at nine after that, whatever it is. But like, like before you get the wearable, just do some basic things that you can do right now and see if you're ready for it, you know? Um, Cause it's not going to change that behavior until you start to get to the root cause of the problem. Yeah. The road, the road to hell was paved with good intentions. We all have good intentions about what we you know, think will help us out and you know, what the things that we can purchase. It's, it's so sexy mm-hmm. and uh, it's, it's fun to do those things, but then we find that, yeah, it's just kind of another mechanism to either tell us uh, that, yeah, we slept like crap or that we didn't recover well with the wearables or, you know, we just have another fancy piece of tech that sits over there and goes unutilized. So let's just engage in the basics and then we built a good foundation and good habits, well, then maybe we can augment or supplement with uh, some of these other strategies as well. So, yeah. So, uh, Tim, man, it's been a wonderful talk, man. You are a wealth of knowledge. You obviously are quite passionate and knowledgeable in all of these areas. So I appreciate you coming and sharing with the Hanu crowd. Uh, So why don't you do a couple of things? Uh, Number one, let us know where we can pre-order your book. And then number two, uh, where can we find you if we want to follow you, learn more about you? phpodcast.com. Uh, so that stands for Performance Health Podcast, uh, where we're focused on health and health. The health is capitalized, but it's another story. On phpodcast.com, uh, and we'll have a shop section on there. If you just want to go phpodcast.com backslash shop, or just go to phpodcast, you'll see plenty of links to get to it. Uh, pre-orders are available. Uh, with all pre-orders, we're giving out all of the programs that we did at Army West Point. That could be the whole premise for the entire book. So if you get a pre-order in before... Uh, the end of June, you'll be able to get a copy of those if that was something you're interested in. And then where to find me, uh, go to Coach Tim Karen, my Instagram, uh, same thing on Twitter, and then uh, PA, a Performance Health Podcast Instagram as well, which are all featured through the website, so you can be able to find that stuff pretty readily. Um, and awesome. whatever you can do to support it, it'd be awesome, man. Indeed. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tim. Hey, man, listen, I'm going to have to have you back on because I'd love to take uh, just like a full podcast and talk about like all things recovery because I know that's a fun, sexy topic for a lot of people and highly important. So dude, thanks for coming on and talking with you, man. I had a, uh, had a great, great time Thank chatting. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.